0: Which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com/easy. 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 Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank. Members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Take a moment to consider the rhetoric around what's happening in Ukraine.
0: Yes, as, as U.S. ramps up its efforts to try to head off a Russian invasion of Ukraine, we are getting new information about Russian troop movements, new information about possible invasion plans. The British officials say.
2: In the last few days, Ukraine has accused Russia of sending mercenaries across its borders to stir up trouble, has said Russia launched a cyber attack against it. And talks aimed at cooling things down do not seem to be going anywhere.
0: This time, Mr. Putin's aim is bigger than closing NATO's open door to Ukraine and taking more territory. He wants to evict the United States from Europe, as he might put it. Goodbye, America. Don't let the door hit you on the way out.
2: The United States has decided to pull diplomats' family members out of Ukraine, while simultaneously considering sending troops into the region.
0: The United States is not just waiting for them to pull the trigger and to go across the Ukraine border before they take steps. We got about 8,500 U.S. troops who have been put on notice. They, they may deploy in Eastern Europe in case Russia makes a move. A full-scale Russian invasion with devastating effect is very, very possible.
2: I'm kind of curious, in one word, how you would describe the state of affairs between the West and Russia over Ukraine right now. Knife edge? I got Amy McKinnon on the line. She's a national security reporter at Foreign Policy, hoping she'd help cut through the noise. You say knife edge. Yeah. I have to tell you, here's where I am, which is I'm confused because there's, there's a lot of talking and rumors about what's, what's about to happen. But I can't really pick apart what's real and what is like a foreign policy hawk's fever dream. And I wonder, I wonder if you ever feel like that too, that like we're at this moment of, of maximal chaos. And so it's really hard to know what to believe.
3: I worry about that too. You know, I often kind of in working on these stories, try and pause and be like, is, is this happening, right? Because it seems so terrifying, the idea of a major Russian assault on Ukraine, which is what we're being warned about. And so I kind of do pause and ask myself, like, is this Washington just getting high on its own supply? But the things that give me pause that make me think that there is something major and that could be something, you know kind of that we haven't seen in in Europe in decades, if not since the Second World War about to happen, is that, um, well, for one thing, this is not a hawkish administration. Um, And that that it was the Biden administration that really started to sound the alarm about this crisis going back to um,
2: kind of late October, early November. In the fall, what officials seem to be responding to was a buildup of Russian troops along Ukraine's border. The funny thing about that, to Amy, was that Russia had surged troops to the border just a few months ago, in the spring. But no one seemed very worried about it back then. What's happening now feels different.
3: What struck me very early on was the rhetoric uh, started, you know, started to ratchet up. Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, started to warn that they were worried they were going to see a repeat of 2014 when Russia invaded Ukraine. Even before they kind of started making major public announcement about this is that we started to see statements about, you know, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan having calls with his European counterparts very early on to discuss this. And very early on, um, there was very intense diplomacy going on with the Europeans and with Ukrainians to kind of share intelligence with them. And so that to me suggested that U.S. intelligence agencies had picked up something that we weren't seeing publicly um, that had them really alarmed. Now I can't tell you what that is that they're seeing. I've asked. Um, they won't share it. But clearly they're seeing that something that has them,
2: has them really, really spooked about this. Today on the show, no one knows how this standoff with Russia is going to end. Here's why it's getting more and more uncomfortable. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person Anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The last few weeks have meant round after round of negotiation between Russia and the West. First, the U.S. sent a deputy secretary of state to the table, then the secretary himself, Anthony Blinken. Each time, Americans walked away without much to show for the effort. And it didn't help that Russia went into these talks arguing for hard lines, a promise that Ukraine stay out of NATO, creating a kind of buffer between itself and the West. Putin also wanted to have a say in where Europe and the U.S. position weapons that could be used against Russia. I mean, the Biden administration
3: has always said it doesn't see diplomacy as a reward and and that they're always willing to talk and to find a diplomatic off-ramp. But the Russians as well kind of threw down this gauntlet. They posted uh, online um, essentially a kind of a draft treaty saying, this is what we want. We look forward to discussing this with you. Is that typical? It's an unusual style of negotiation. I mean, it's it does slightly, I think, buck diplomatic protocols to, to just like... I think they were like Word documents or PDFs just posted online. But I think what was more at issue was the substance of of Russia's demands. And there was kind of two buckets to what they were asking. One very much focused on on NATO, right? They want... Written ironclad guarantees that Ukraine and Georgia will never join NATO and that NATO will never expand further east. But they also want a kind of a rollback to NATO where it was kind of mid 90s before Eastern European states began joining it. They want NATO troops out of those countries, NATO material out of those countries. So there was a kind of NATO basket of things. And it was very clear very early on that that was just going to be a non starter for US and European officials. But then there was the kind of the broader. European security guarantees set of issues, which is like arms control, more transparency over military exercises, better communication. And and that was something where, you know, I think US officials felt that it was in the interest of all parties to have talks with Russia and maybe find ways forward, which would be in the interest of everyone. But what we saw after these very intensive rounds of diplomacy in Europe earlier this month is that Russia really has dug its heels in on, on the question of NATO expansion. Um, and that's kind of become, you know, the central flashpoint to this is that Russia is looking to kind of relitigate the um, security, the post-Cold War security arrangements in Europe and uh, Western European officials are are really just not willing to budge on that.
2: And I think it's important to dig in here because I think in some ways when I hear Russia wants to talk about NATO membership, I guess I can understand it from their point of view. Like NATO is the military alliance that was established to counter Russia in Europe. And so it's it could be seen as an anti-Russian force. But I think what's important to distinguish is that leading into this Ukraine- conflict that we're in right now. not It's not open conflict, but this diplomatic conflict. There's been conversation about, well, what Russia wants is for Ukraine to not be able to join NATO. But it's actually more expansive than that. And I wonder if you can lay that out a little bit. Like, it, it's not just Ukraine not being able to join NATO. What else is it? It's a return
3: to spheres of influence, I mean, is the kind of through line of what they've asked. You know, the Russians are seeking to kind of, if not formally, to, at least in spirit, kind of carve up Europe again and say, okay, you know, these countries that, you know, they're in NATO, fine, they can stay there. But countries along our eastern flank, you know, we want NATO to kind of withdraw its presence there because they're looking to kind of carve out these spheres of influence. And we know that this is something that, you know, Russian officials have very publicly railed against for decades now, Um, including Putin himself, has been very open at his distrust of NATO expansion eastward. But it's really only, I think, in this moment that Russian policymakers have kind of looked to their own capabilities, both militarily and in terms of their financial reserves, look to the international landscape where they see a West, which is kind of divided and beset by its own crises, and kind of see an opening to to address these grievances that they've had for a very long time. So Russia sees
2: an opportunity right now. Yeah.
3: They see an opportunity to kind of remake European security in their favor.
2: I know that you've spoken to Biden administration officials about their foreign policy doctrine. I'm sort of curious when you did that, how did Ukraine and Russia fit into that? Last week, I spoke with Jake Sullivan,
3: Biden's national security advisor, and I I asked him, you know, there's been, at the beginning of the administration, the phrase that we heard a lot in reference to the administration's approach to Russia was this desire to carve out a stable and predictable relationship. Like That was the phrase all of the official senior officials were using in talks and statements stable and predictable relationship
2: and it sounds like manage it like put it in a corner and sort of do other things like maybe turn to china that was how some analysts interpreted it yes was to kind
3: of park russia hope that it kind of behaves itself for the next 4 to 8 years and and focus on the china challenge that was that was how some people saw it of course this past year the relationship with russia has been anything but stable and predictable and so i put this question to him i mean in hindsight does he see this was this the right move you know if they had been harder on russia in the early days of the administration would russia be uh, making these moves around Ukraine and I thought his answer was was kind of interesting You know, he said there's there's always there's two schools of thoughts, right? Which are constantly debating about Russia, which is you know, the West one is that the West pushed too hard was too forward was too aggressive and that provoked Russia and Russia's now reacting in response to that and the other school of thought is um. Uh, is that they weren't hard enough, you know, that that Putin sensed weakness, and that if they'd have only done more, then maybe he wouldn't have, have been making these
2: moves. When you asked about Ukraine, because I'm sure that you did, what did he say? So I spoke to him right after this very intense
3: round of diplomacy in Europe, um, you know, where they tried to find a diplomatic off-ramp, but Russia kind of appeared to be digging in its heels. And I, you know, I asked him, you know, how what did he make of the talks and and had it changed the calculus for for war for Moscow? Um, you know, and he just said that the US is prepared for either response. I mean, if 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 the Russians want to go ahead with diplomacy, they're willing to keep talking. But at the same time, you know, if Russia wants to go ahead with invasion and escalating the situation, that they're they're also putting their their ducks in a row for that. You know, we've seen warnings in both statements, but also through the press that, you know, the US has, has prepared a very punishing package of sanctions to be imposed. Um, On a call uh, this morning um, with senior administration officials, you know, they told the press that, you know, there's not going to be a ladder of
2: escalation. They're going to start at the top of the ladder and they're going to stay there. So after that conversation you had, of course, American officials entered into conversations with Russian officials. It didn't seem to change much, though. But I wonder if, if you saw something I didn't. It's hard to tell.
3: And I think, I mean, this was something that Biden said at his press conference last week is that even senior U.S. officials are telling him that they're not sure that their Russian counterparts know what Putin's thinking is. And so nobody really knows what Putin's calculus is. Talks are still ongoing. I mean, the, the meeting on Friday between Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and, and Secretary of State uh, uh, Anthony Blinken was seen as the kind of the last push, a uh, kind of a, a major meeting, a major face to face to try and find an off-ramp. And again, we haven't seen much come out of that. I mean there's still diplom- I think there's still diplomacy going on behind the scenes. there's still talks ongoing. but uh, Russia has really dug its heels in on on this question of NATO expansion um, and doesn't seem to be climbing down from that.
2: After the break, can anyone read Vladimir Putin's mind?
1: Dot com, And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: President Biden has basically said that whatever happens now will depend on Vladimir Putin. And he's, he sort of said he, he makes choices based on what side of the bed he wakes up on in the morning.
3: Nobody else is going to make that decision. No one else is going to impact that decision. He's making that decision.
0: And I suspect it matters which side of the bed he gets up on in the morning as to exactly what he's going to do.
3: Do you think that's fair? I mean, the ultimate decision will be taken by Putin and Putin alone. I mean, it's an authoritarian system. Putin has a very small circle of of advisors around him but he's the he's an authoritarian leader he's the boss it will be ultimately him who decides on this I think at the same time you know Putin's not I don't think he is an irrational actor you know he will be taking stock very carefully of of it the potential gains of it, of an assault on Ukraine the potential risks what the russian economy can sustain what the risks might be for his grip on power also what the risks are of not attacking ukraine because that's the other thing is you know if they see an opening now they may fear that, that that window may close in a couple of years and so they may see this as as their only opportunity to kind of shift the facts on the ground in their favor so i don't think he is the mercurial actor that he's often made out to be i think he is pretty clinical in these decisions but also, he's very nimble. You know, there's there's an inherent, there's a much higher appetite for risk in the Russian system, in the, in the Russian political system than, um, than you might see from from a democratic state, right? Because it's just easier to make decisions. You don't have a, a Congress to answer to or, or an
2: independent press. I was listening to an interview with a researcher named Nina Khrushcheva this morning, and I found it really interesting because she basically posited that she thought Vladimir Putin may have overplayed his hand in Ukraine. And I wonder if you're seeing more and more analysts thinking along those lines and and what that would mean.
3: I think it will depend on if he attacks or not. I mean, I, the, the way things stand now, I mean, Putin can wind this down. I think he has painted himself into a corner diplomatically and in terms of his credibility as a threat actor that it's, he has made it difficult for himself to de-escalate, um, having thrown down such kind of stark red lines and really dug in on that. But um, he could. It's still within his power and his power alone to unwind this. But if he does launch a war on Ukraine, I mean, there are some scenarios that people are kind of looking at as to how that would play out. But but war is also inherently unpredictable. And so it, it you know, whilst, as I said, you know, I think Putin is a is a calculated actor and will be calculating the risks of this. You know, there are wild cards in war as to how this will go, as to how how hard the Ukrainian military will fight back, you know, what kind of toll they can exact on the Russian military. Um, how will the Russian public take military losses if there, if there are substantial losses to Russian troops? How will the Russian public respond to seeing, you know, uh, Ukrainian mass casualties? Um, Russian public opinion, I think, has... Has a much more limited impact on Putin's calculus, but it's still a factor. It's still, you know, I think ultimately his uh, his single overriding primary objective at the end of the day is his survival and the survival of his regi- regime. And so it's not it's not totally without consideration how the public, but also the elites in Russia, who, who wield more power, how how they may respond to this. There's a lot of a lot of unknowns there. Um, so I, you know, he certainly does risk overextending himself in the event of an assault.
2: Yeah, it sounds a little bit like you're saying for Vladimir Putin, it's a really complicated pro and con list here. Because, of course, there's this huge pro of having Ukraine back in the Russian fold. And then there's the pro of kind of messing with the West's heads and maybe getting something out of that. But maybe he's already achieved that (laughs) without actually the risks of a military incursion and so then the question becomes how hard do you push because an actual invasion is a high risk high reward strategy for you
3: i still think his ultimate goal is to to just permanently kneecap ukraine's ability to integrate with With the west and to join nato i still think that's that's his ultimate goal but in some ways i mean he already has succeeded in shifting the debate on that and you're kind of you know you are starting to see discussions about well maybe nato should just say that ukraine can't join or put a moratorium on it for 10 years or you know putin has kind of you know we're not seeing this from from officials publicly in the us and europe but Putin has kind of managed to to shift the debate on this a little bit and to to open the Overton window on on what people are kind of willing to talk about in terms of of Ukraine and its and its and its NATO membership.
2: Yeah. When I was listening to that interview with Nina Khrushcheva, where she was talking about Vladimir Putin and maybe he's overplayed his hand, mm. it was interesting because her the point she landed on was you know, Putin's a KGB officer. If he's going to really do this, he wouldn't be this open. He wouldn't, you know, this is blackmail brinkmanship, essentially, as opposed to an actual, you know, threat of invasion in the end, in a traditional sense, in the way that you might be thinking of it when you think of 100,000 troops massed on the border.
3: Mm. I mean, it could be. It could just all be brinkmanship. I would love it to be brinkmanship because that is Certainly better than than all-out war, um, but for brinkmanship to work, you know the threat has to be credible. You can't park a hundred troops on Ukraine's border as, as a saber rattling exercise. You do have to 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 terrify people a little bit, and so perhaps that's what this is all about. But then I go back to the question of well, what has this achieved for Putin? You know, if we assess that his ultimate goal is stopping Ukraine's NATO membership, well, that hasn't happened. So how does he wind this down? What does that, that's, the, that's what I don't quite see that route. Like, what does Putin go, if he wants to wind this down, what does he go home and tell the elites and the public, this is what I got out of this. You know, I did this mass mobilization
2: and this is what we got. Cause he hasn't gotten anything out of it so far. That's such um, a good point that he's a strong man. And mm-hmm. so the question becomes, you know, he has to get something for all of this and what will it be? And if it's not war, what is it?
3: And I think that's why, you know, U.S. officials have questioned how serious Russia is about diplomacy, because they're trying to give him some, well, they're not trying to give him something, but they are trying to to have discussions, to have talks about European security, about these kind of these broader issues beyond NATO. But um, and that's, you know, potentially something that the Russians could take home and in, in the in the lather of Russian state media, you know, uh, package up as, as a win. But they haven't really done that. And so, you know, that leaves the kind of lingering question is, well, what does he get out of this? How does he deescalate? What's the off ramp for him?
2: Amy McKinnon, thank you so much for joining me.
3: No, thank you for having me.
2: Amy McKinnon is a national security and intelligence reporter for Foreign Policy. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Elena Schwartz, Daniel Hewitt, and Mary Wilson. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Alison Benedict. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.